morning. Morning. So today we're going to be talking about a doctrine um, very closely related to the doctrine I previously discussed, which was inspiration uh, last time we met, and uh, today we'll be talking about inerrancy. Um, so last time we were together, um, we talked about inspiration, we talked about the view of inspiration that we hold to, which is verbal plenary inspiration, uh, we talked about some false views of inspiration um, that don't allow for uh, the Bible to be exclusively inspired by God himself. Uh, some of those uh, views allow for uh, certain individuals to be inspired of their own uh, attributes and talents, um, and some of them reject uh, inspiration altogether. And so uh, going hand in hand with that, we've got inerrancy. Um, and some of the problems we saw with some of the views of inspiration had to do with inerrancy because they lead us to believe that the Bible can contain errors. So the doctrine of inerrancy tells us that the Bible, as presented to us, uh, is the perfect word of God that is incapable of containing any error whatsoever, and therefore any teaching that it provides to us is not only true, but correct and accurate. So, um, let's see, we'll turn to... Uh, Go ahead and turn to Numbers 23. Um, we'll start there. And I'm going to go through, uh, we're going to um, first look at um, some scriptures concerning what the Bible itself has to say about being the inerrant word of God. Uh, and then we're going to actually look at what some extra biblical sources uh, show us and how they prove that, yes, indeed, the scripture is the inerrant word of God. Um, that's the beautiful thing about the different historical sources that we have uh, available to us these days. Um, we have a wealth of information uh, available to us. Um, we should uh, absolutely trust the scriptures just based on their own authority. But for those who challenge the scriptures, we don't have to limit ourselves to defending the scriptures just with the scriptures themselves. And that's the beautiful thing that we have available to us. God has given us so many gifts uh, and preserved so many things for us to be able to use as, as tools uh, in not only building our own faith, but defending our faith to others. All right, so uh, hold on a second. Let me just find my place here. All right, so Numbers twenty three nineteen. <clears throat> we see that it reads, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man, that he should repent, hath he said, and shall he not do it, or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So, here we see that the Bible is telling us that God is not like a man, and that he does not lie. And this is going to form the foundation of uh, our belief in inerrancy of the scriptures, because if we believe, as we covered uh, in my previous lesson on inspiration, that God is who inspired the scriptures, then if we can establish that God himself is truthful and not capable of error and is not a liar, we know that whatever he inspires also has to uh, bear that, that same quality. So we see that attested here in Numbers 23.19. Um, we see that he's not a man, he should not lie, and um, then it's posing some hypothetical questions, uh, you know, if he speaks something, shall he not make it good? Um, so this is giving us uh, a foundation to, uh, to go off of in terms of God's um, quality of, of being truth. Uh, we can now 
We can turn to Romans chapter 3. And I'm just going to give us a couple of scriptures here that establish this so we, we see that it's not just in one single isolated scripture, but we see that throughout the entirety of the scriptures, uh, the same quality is continuing to be presented to us. <clears throat> Romans chapter 3. Um, We'll start in verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Uh, The oracles of God is just another name for uh, the scriptures of God. Um, For what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So here Paul is, is writing uh, to the, the Romans, and he's bringing up the fact that the Jews were the ones who were given the oracles of God. Um, but then he's going on to say, uh, for what if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And then that's when he goes on to say, uh, may God be true and, and every man be a liar. So regardless of who the scriptures are given to, and regardless of whether they're received and accepted or not, does not change the fact that God is true and God is not a liar, and he's presented us with a perfect word. It's how we receive it that uh, affects how we can then apply it, or if it even uh, applies, uh, to, if we're able to apply it. Um, but that doesn't change the truthful quality of God, nor does it change the inerrancy of the scriptures themselves as given to us. Um, Let's go ahead and turn to Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Paul writes... Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we'll see, as Paul is going down through this greeting, in verse 1, um, he's saying, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So he's equating truth with godliness. Then he's going on to say, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. So here he's saying that God can't lie, and he's also telling us that God promised eternal life. So this is something that should reassure us because we see throughout the the scriptures that uh, God promises eternal life to those who believe. Here Paul is saying that God can't lie. So clearly God is giving us a promise. And going back to that passage in uh, Numbers 23 that we just read, um, given those hypothetical situations that that the author is presenting, uh, posing the question, if God says something, is is he not going to make it good? Well, the answer to that question is yes. And here we have Paul affirming that same thing. 
Um, he goes on to say that uh, this was promised before the world began, um, and that uh, in due times it was manifested, um, that God manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me, Paul in this case, uh, according to the commandment of God our Savior. So, uh, going back to what we covered before with inspiration, again, we're seeing that God himself is um, not only incapable of lying, but he's also sharing these truths uh, through preaching, in this case, through an apostle that's committed to the word of God that we have contained now in the scriptures. Uh, so it, it all kind of ties together in the sense that God has inspired uh, these individuals to write these scriptures and throughout his word, he is affirming that he is indeed truthful. He will indeed keep his promises. We can indeed trust these scriptures. <clears throat> uh, let's finally uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, we'll start in verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here again we're seeing promises, uh, and we're seeing uh, the fact that God cannot lie. Um, we're seeing that it is impossible for God to lie, and we're seeing that uh, his promise uh, is immutable, uh, and it's confirmed by his oath. Uh, so consistently throughout, uh, we just see time and time again, the scriptures are telling us God cannot lie. Now, um, one other thing that we can take from that too is that not only can God not lie, but he's also presenting us with a clear word. Uh, and so uh, with inerrancy, we're not only looking at is it true and is it correct, but also can we understand it? Uh, or are there potential errors in it that through differences in interpretation could lead to two very different opinions on the same subject? So we can turn to 1 Corinthians for this. And in 1 Corinthians we can turn to chapter 14. And we see in this chapter uh, that Paul is uh, discussing at length uh, the use of prophecy in the assembly at that time. In verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, we see that he writes, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Uh, so he had been previously addressing the fact that... Um, there had been uh, prophecy and speaking in tongues uh, happening in a very undisciplined fashion uh, in the assembly. And he's saying that the, uh, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. He's saying that despite the fact that they're being given a message from God, they're still in control of their own actions, which means that they can hold their tongue until it's uh, their time to speak. 
And then he goes on to say that God is not the author of confusion. He wants everything to be orderly. He wants everything to be clear and concise so that we can understand it. So we see that the scriptures attest to not only the fact that God is truthful, but also the fact that God uh, desires clarity of his word for us to be able to understand. And then, of course, um, with all of those uh, factors in place, um, then you know, when we read a, in a, a scripture uh, like 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God, we now have established the fact that the God breathing out that scripture to us can't lie, and he desires clarity. So we have a very clear and a very true word that's been given to us by God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, we also see this uh, attested um, by Jesus in the Gospels. Um, we can go to John chapter 14. referenced uh, this particular scripture a couple of times throughout uh, this teaching series, and this is a a very commonly uh, used scripture we all know. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So we see two things established here. First and foremost, we see that Jesus is saying that he's the truth, and then secondly, uh, we're seeing that um, anyone who knows Jesus knows the Father. So if he's a, an exact replication, or a representation, rather, uh, of the Father uh, in human form, then that means that God is true, Jesus is true, anything that God presents to us in the Scriptures through the prophets and the writers of the Scriptures is true, and anything recorded as the words of Jesus in those Scriptures is also true. And then we can go to John chapter 1, And in John chapter 1, we see uh, in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we're seeing that Jesus here, in this case, is the Word that was made flesh, that dwelt among us, and we see, once again, the Bible is confirming the fact that he's full of grace and truth. And we see this consistently throughout these scriptures, too. You'll notice that Truth always goes hand in hand with grace, with faith, with hope, because that's where we get our hope, in the truthfulness of God. If, if we were holding a book full of lies or full of obscurities that we couldn't make heads or tails of, what comfort do we take from this? But we see established time and time again, consistently throughout, that God wants us to know that he is true. And his promises never change. When you read through the Bible consistently, there is no contradiction, nor is there any change in any of the promises from Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's consistently the same theme, the same story, the same promises. And so through that consistency and through these, um, these claims of uh, truthfulness, we can take a hope away from that. We can, we can actually put our faith into something that is true, objectively true, uh, as opposed to something that you know, maybe has differing opinions. Um, where we're only going by our own subjective standards. 
So because Jesus himself uh, is here giving his stamp of approval to uh, not only God uh, the Father being truthful, but also the scriptures being truthful, then uh, another scripture we had looked at previously throughout this study we can go to is in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 17 and 18, once again we read, uh, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. Uh, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one uh, jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So once again we're seeing that uh, not only is the word perfect, but it also is eternal. So any promise that was made in these scriptures at the beginning still holds true for us today and still will hold true until the end of all things. <clears throat> so we see um, some scriptures uh, concerning uh, God's quality of truthfulness, uh, how his word is immutable, uh, it's impossible for him to lie, uh, and then we see um, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, presents to us the fact that God uh, breathed out the scriptures to us, so if uh, a truthful, honest, perfect God gave us these scriptures, we can trust them. Jesus himself says the same thing. We see that he was the word uh, made flesh. Uh, he uh, perfectly represents the Father uh, in human form as he walked on this earth. And he puts his own stamp of approval on the uh, <coughs> eternal um, truthfulness and uh, perfection of, of the scriptures as well. Um, finally, uh, we can go to the Old Testament again. Uh, we can go to Ezekiel chapter 13. And here we can see God also providing us with some assurance on what is contained within the scriptures that we can trust that nothing crept into the scriptures that doesn't belong there. And this kind of goes back to what we discussed with special revelation um, a few weeks prior. Uh, concerning uh, the prophets and uh, things like prophecy. So in Ezekiel chapter 13, uh, verse 9, we see that it reads, And mine hand, uh, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, And mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity and that divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, neither shall they enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord God. So he's saying here that any false prophets, they have no place in the assembly. Their words have no place in, in his scriptures. God is a perfect caretaker of his scriptures that he has handed down to us. They have been perfectly preserved for thousands of years. He has ensured that we got them exactly the way that he wanted us to receive them. Uh, so we don't need to worry about there being things in the scriptures that are false, that are incorrect, uh, that are intentionally there to deceive us. Uh, we don't have to worry that someone has tampered with our Bibles uh, over the course of uh, so many centuries and perhaps changed the message uh, so that we have a false message. Everything contained in these scriptures has been given to us by God, who himself is a perfect caretaker uh, of these, these scriptures. And he's confirming that fact through his prophet Ezekiel uh, in that uh, very same book. So that serves to give us a biblical foundation of inerrancy in scriptures.
But, I can hear the skeptics saying right now, Jason, you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because how can you use the very source that you're trying to prove is, is accurate as its, its own uh, evidence? So, this is the beautiful thing about modern archaeology. Um, we have access to so many different archaeological finds. Uh, we have archaeological discoveries of ancient ruins of cities. We have consistently um, people uh, every day uh, working on uncovering uh, ancient manuscripts that have been thought lost to time. Um, so I'm going to give a couple of examples here. And bear in mind, these are just a few examples. Um, I mean, I would need the next couple of years worth of Sunday school classes to cover everything, and even then it probably won't be enough. So I'm just giving you a few so that this can pique your curiosity. You can do some research on your own, and uh, this can serve as a, a foundation for how we can view some of these extra-biblical sources, not as inspired by God, but as being preserved by God for the purpose of showing that his word is indeed true. So... Um, I'm sure everybody at one point in time has either heard somebody mention or has employed uh, using the Romans Road as a, an apologetic tactic uh, and as an evangelism tool um, when they've been out talking to the general public. So I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to give you the Hittite Highway. All right. And I am copywriting that, so nobody's allowed to take that and use it on their own. So um, does anybody does anybody know uh, who the Hittites are when I mention the Hittites? Um, any scriptures come to mind uh, on any notable Hittites or just any mentions of them? They were in the Old Testament. They were uh, on the other side of the river uh, Jordan, the Hittites. You talk about the Hittites. Yes, yeah, so they, they, were, um, they occupied the land uh, directly above uh, Israel. Um, so you had uh, uh, Babylon and Assyria were kind of like to the, the northeast, uh, and then you had the Hittites directly above so, uh, the Hittite Empire um, were first introduced to uh, the Hittites all the way back in Genesis 15. Um, and they are mentioned 48 times as a people, uh, not even just isolating that to specific individuals uh, mentioned by name, but just the Hittite people are mentioned 48 times throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 15, verse 20, we see the first mention of them. Uh, we'll back up a couple of verses just for context. Um, let's go to verse 18. So, in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, a lot of times when we come to passages like this, we just go through the names, we don't really bother to think about them, you know, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, who cares, they're an ancient people, nobody cares. Um, we can care, though, uh, because the Hittites themselves, uh, up into, until just a few centuries ago, uh, were considered by most uh, scholars to be nothing more than a myth. The reason for this being that the only mention of them uh, in any record whatsoever was the Hebrew Bible. 
and most scholars reject the Hebrew Bible as being a historically accurate uh, account. So up until that time, people thought one of two things. Either the Hittites are a complete myth, and the uh, ancient Jews just made them up, or uh, they were some people that maybe the Jews just called by another name, but they were really you know, part of some other uh, nation, and there was no Hittite empire or anything like that. They were just some uh, other people group that belonged to some other nation. Um, this wasn't helped by um, the ancient historian Herodotus. Uh, in his histories, he wrote... Uh, so he was traveling, and he came across uh, some ancient hieroglyphics, um, and he was speculating as to their origins. Uh, this comes from 430 B.C. In his histories, it reads, Most of the pillars which King Sesostris of Egypt erected in these places no longer appear to be there, but I myself have seen them in Palestinian Syria, with the inscriptions I mentioned, and the female genitalia. In Ionia, there are also two figures of Sesostris carved in the rock, one on the route from Ephesus to Phokia, and the other between Sardis and Smyrna. In both places, a man, carved, a man is carved four cubits and a span high with a spear in his right hand, a bow in his left, and the rest of his equipment to match. In fact, it is partly Egyptian and partly Ethiopian. From one shoulder right across his chest to the other shoulder runs a carved inscription in Egyptian hieroglyphics saying, I took this land with the power of my shoulders. He does not indicate in this inscription who he is and what country he is from, but it is clear from elsewhere. Some people who have seen these carvings guess that the, the figure is Memnon, but that does not really correspond to the facts. So Herodotus sees these hieroglyphics. He sees somebody who looks really important, and he assumes that it's an Egyptian uh, uh, pharaoh, and that the uh, hieroglyphics themselves are Egyptian. This is back in 430 BC. Um, fast forward up to 1876, um, and a scholar by the name of Archibald Henry Sace. Uh, Archibald Henry Sace uh, is writing uh, in his reminiscences. Um, one morning I was with him, uh, this is, he's referring to uh, his friend Isaac Taylor, in his library when the question of the so-called Hamathite inscriptions turned up. These were inscriptions in a new form of hieroglyphic script which had first been detected on certain stones at Hamath. While I was talking to Taylor, a sudden inspiration came to me. I asked him for a copy of Rawlinson's Herodotus and then pointed out to him that a picture of it uh, a picture in it of a monument in the Pass of Carabel near Smyrna, which Herodotus believed to have been a memorial of the Egyptian pharaoh Sesostris, presented us with a figure in precisely the same style of art as that of the monuments of Ivriz and Carchemish, and accompanied by badly copied hieroglyphics, which would probably turn out to be those I called Hittite. The pseudo-Sesostris had already been recognized as belonging to the same school of art as certain figures cut on the rocks of an ancient sanctuary near Bogaz Q in Cappadocia, the age and artistic relations of which were unknown, and about which various fantastic theories were current. Photographs of them had been taken by the French explorer and scholar Parrot. These Taylor hunted up, and we saw that not only was the art the same at Bogaz Q, at Carabal, at Ivriz, and at Carchemish, but that the figures of Bogaz Q were accompanied by hieroglyphs similar to those of Isra's. It was clear that in pre-Hellenic days, 
a powerful empire must have existed in Asia Minor, which extended from the Aegean to the Halus and southward into Syria to Carchemish and Hamath, and possessed its own special artistic culture and its own special script, and so the story of the Hittite Empire was introduced into the world. Up until 1876, everyone thought that the Hittites were a myth, because their only mention was in the Hebrew Bible. And if you believed otherwise, it was probably just because you were blinded by your faith. In 1876, we see Archibald uh, Henry Sace uh, pick up on a mistake in Herodotus's histories all the way back in 430 BC. And this begins uh, a wave of interest in the Hittite nation. Uh, in 1888, he writes uh, a book on the Hittite nation. In 1906, a German by the name of uh, Hugo Winkler uh, leads an expedition and uncovers the capital of the Hittite nation, Hattusis. Uh, from that point on, after 1906, there have been countless books written about the Hittites, and up until uh, just the late 1800s, they were considered to be nothing more than a myth because their only mention is here in the Bible. That's example number one. Uh, example number two We can look at the uh, story of Joseph. Uh, if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, uh, we see in verse... 28. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And once again, we read a scripture like this, and the main focus is on the story of Joseph. You know, he's getting sold into slavery. This is really exciting. What's going to happen? Uh, we sometimes overlook the, the little details. Little details like 20 pieces of silver. So, again, we don't have to just rely on the Bible uh, as being uh, an accurate account. We can trust the Bible. We know that the Bible is true. But we also have other sources that show that this is actually indeed uh, what the price of slaves were during this time in history. And what we can do is we can go to uh, the writings of Hammurabi. We can uh, look at uh, the Hammurabi Code. And we can read a couple of different places. Uh, let's see... Number 116, uh, if the pledge had died from beating or abuse in the house of his distrainer, so it's talking about a slave here, the owner of the pledge shall prove it against his merchant, and if it was the uh, senior's son, they shall put his son to death. If it was the senior's slave, he shall pay one-third mina of silver and also forfeit everything else that he lent. A mina... Uh, is the equivalent of roughly about 60 shekels. Uh, so when we once again look at the price of uh, a slave, uh, according to the story of Joseph, we see he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, which is uh, the equivalent of roughly uh, 20, uh, 20 shekels. Um, if we look in the Hammurabi Code, we see that uh, the price is given as one-third mina of silver, so if we do the math, one-third of 60 is 20. Uh, it's mentioned uh, two other times in the, the Code of Hammurabi as well. Uh, we see 
that apparently there was also inflation in the ancient world uh, because by the time of Exodus we see the price is raised uh, to 30 shekels. This is actually keeping in um, consistency with historical records of the time uh, that's mentioned in Exodus 21:32. Um, and um, we, we can also, uh, uh, Kenneth Kitchen goes on to write uh, about this same subject uh, in more detail as well, if you want to check out a source by him uh, in his book on the reliability of the Old Testament. That's uh, Kenneth Kitchen is the author. The, um, the final thing we'll look at is uh, the numbers uh, in the book of Numbers. Um, this is one that I've actually had the, uh, the pleasure of discussing with someone personally. So uh, the numbers have been oftentimes contested uh, that are presented in the, uh, the censuses in uh, Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. Um, some objections to those numbers are the fact that they're all round numbers. Um, other objections are the fact that when you compare the census numbers, uh, there's very little change in uh, the population of the Israelites after 40 years' time. And this was actually addressed by a mathematician by the name of Jonathan Rosenberg, who um, went through and graphed out uh, the census in Numbers 1 and Numbers 26, and explained how uh, through a number of different variables that we can actually get from the text, just studying the text, and applying some very basic math, uh, there are reasonable explanations as to why the numbers show very little difference from Numbers chapter 1 to Numbers chapter 26. Uh, for those of you who actually attended my classes um, on uh, Phinehas, uh, I think we briefly discussed that. Um, and again, we can go to scripture, we can see some of the explanations provided in that, uh, in terms of maybe why uh, certain tribes uh, fluctuated up or down. Um, but it is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Um, these aren't numbers that are just made up. It is reasonable to think that there was very little change. And also, um, uh, I don't remember uh, the other source, so um, I'll have to uh, maybe provide it next week. But um, I do remember reading another source that addressed the round numbers and the fact that it, while it is unlikely that all of the numbers would be round, it's not completely unreasonable, uh, not to mention the fact that even if the numbers were just rounded off, that doesn't have to change the fact that we can still trust the text, because rounding isn't incorrect, and rounding isn't a blatant lie. Uh, it could have just been a practice in the ancient world that, that we don't take it into account. So, uh, for those of you who are interested in checking out that source, uh, Jonathan Rosenberg um, posted his uh, article on the numbers in uh, the book of Numbers uh, through the University of Maryland um, uh, education website. We, of course, have a, a number of uh, variants in terms of the texts that we have. A lot of uh, skeptics make a bigger deal out of this than what we absolutely need to. Um, I'm going to read a quote from Philip Schaeff, uh that he wrote on this subject uh, back in 1883 in his book, A Companion to the Greek Testament and the English Version. Uh, he writes the following, This multitude of various readings of the Greek text need not puzzle or alarm any Christian. It is the natural result of the great wealth of our documentary sources. 
It is a testimony to the immense importance of the New Testament. It does not affect, but it rather ensures the integrity of the text, and it's a useful stimulus to study. So I'm going to pause right here for a second. And what he's basically saying is the fact that we have so many different variations, uh, variant texts, isn't something we should be concerned about, but rather it's something that we should actually uh, be amazed by and should help us to be sure of our faith. Because the fact that we have so many different sources that show so few differences between them compared to other ancient sources means that clearly there's some sort of supernatural preservation of this word in place. I'll continue reading. Only about 400 of the 100,000 or 150,000 variations materially affect the sense. Of these, again, not more than about 50 are really important for some reason or other, and even of these 50, not a single one affects an article of faith or a precept uh, a precept of duty which is not abundantly sustained by other and undoubted passages or by the whole tenor of Scripture teaching. So what he's basically saying here is that as we continue to reduce these numbers further and further down, we see minor differences reduced to insignificant differences reduced to really something that doesn't even change any of what the, the scripture is, is telling us. And um, I actually watched a, a presentation a while ago by uh, uh, Daniel Wallace uh, from uh, Dallas Theological Cemetery, or, yeah, cemetery, excuse me, <laughs> seminary. Uh, let me, let me uh, uh, revise that. Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, uh, he was talking about the very same thing, and uh, he actually explained that um, if you were to take a very simple uh, statement in the Bible, um, he went through all of the different ways that you could say it in the Greek language, and it was literally thousands of different ways where it would still retain its original meaning, but you could write it in a slightly different way. You can rearrange words, you can use different alternate spellings. It doesn't change the fundamental meaning. And so these, vari uh, these variant texts and these perceived uh, contradictions and discrepancies between them are really only a tool by skeptics who just simply don't want to believe the fact that something like the Bible could be so well-preserved for thousands of years and still be relevant to us today. It really comes down to authority, is what it comes down to. We're rejecting the authority of Scripture when we do that, not because the Scripture has proven to be untrustworthy, but because it says things that we don't want it to say. Uh, I've given you just three examples, actually four technically, if you count that last um, quote that I read, of um, challenges to the historical accuracy of the Bible. There are hundreds, if not thousands more, that have all been addressed. There is not one single reasonable, skeptical claim that can't be met with a reasonable explanation. So, what we really have to look at then is just accepting the scriptures as an authority. They have never once been proven wrong. Uh, they have very often been proven correct. And the scriptures themselves, uh, as I've shown you um, from the, the scriptures that we've read through this morning, consistently tell us that God is true, God cannot lie, he's given us clarity of, of his word, 